You're listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. And turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse number 4. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and you have my absolute permission to fill out this uh, survey while I'm preaching. I know some of you probably don't need that anyway, um, but we need you to do that. If you would turn that in as you leave this morning to one of our ushers, and we would love to have that this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse number 4. Would you stand this morning as we read God's Word? Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The Bible says, God says through Moses, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You may be seated. This next three weeks, we're going to be walking through the vision statement of our church. Uh, This morning is my ninth year as the pastor here at Central, and I'm greatly honored and privileged to, uh, to be here and excited for all the things that God is doing. But our vision statement is this, is that our church, Central Baptist Church, is to be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church that makes disciples and raises up the next generation of church planners, missionaries, disciple makers, and church leaders to reach Sanford, the surrounding communities, and the nations for Jesus Christ. And this morning, we begin with multi-generational ministry. And the reason why I want to begin here is because we live in a deeply divided society. The fault line of the divisions in our country are economic, political, racial, moral, and religious. Our nation has changed. The nation that maybe you grew up with is not the nation that we have today. The secularization of America has shifted our country from being perhaps maybe a Christian nation to now a post-Christian nation. The current generation that was born from 2000 to 2015 is the largest in the world. 32% of the world's population is Generation Z, and yet statistically it is known to be the least religious of all. Most Generation Zers are not leaving Christianity when they get to college like their predecessors, the millennials did, but yet, if they are Christianized at all, many of them are leaving the faith in their adolescence. The question is, as we think about this, is who is to blame? Typically, we want to blame somebody. So who is to blame for the crisis that we have in the next generation? Should we blame parents for not reaching their kids? Or should we blame kids for hardening their hearts? And I tell you that the answer is both. But yet this morning, this is why we have as our vision statement that we want to be multi-generational, that we want to be a church that reaches all generations. And the reason why is because that is the heart of God. In Deuteronomy, we find the last book of the Torah. It is a speech that is given by Moses before he dies and before the people of God enter into the promised land. 
It can essentially kind of be thought as a pep talk. And what Moses does is he re-gives the law, Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law. And he does this to the next generation with the hope that they will listen and obey even better than their previous generation. Moses in chapter 5 has just given the Ten Commandments, and now in chapter 6 he gives a new commandment, one in which Jesus would call the greatest commandment. It would be known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. The reason that Moses gives the Shema Israel is because the people of God were about to enter into a land that many people worshipped false gods. And what Moses wanted to do is he wanted to prepare them, not just for life, but to prepare them for battle. Because they were going to be entering into a territory in which their affections for God were going to be challenged by the people who lived in the nation. And so he wants them to understand that as people, they have a priority to pass their love for God to the next generation. Now, before some of you begin to tune this out because you think, well, my kids are already grown and it's already too late, or you're thinking, well, I don't have any kids or I'm not even married, I want you to hear that this message is not just for parents and grandparents, it's for everyone in this room. And the reason why is this, is that multi-generational ministry, multi-generational discipleship is not just about the next generation, it's about every generation working together. So I want to give you three things in this text that we learn that we are to do if we're to actually pass our faith on to the next generation. The first thing that I want you to see that, that Moses teaches us here that we see is that if we're to pass the faith on to the next generation, we must, number one, love the Lord passionately. In verse four and five, we get this command. It's not a suggestion. As a matter of fact, it is the core of what it means to actually follow God. And the core of what it means to follow God is not found in the Ten Commandments. It's actually the summation of the Ten Commandments. That you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Why is it that the greatest commandment is the command to love? And the reason why is because if you do not love God, you will not do anything else that God desires for you to do with the right motivation. And the reason for that is because love is actually what motivates our actions. We do what we most want to do, and what we most want to do is driven by what we love. See, we're not primarily thinkers. We are primarily lovers, and what we love drives and motivates our lives. In a very practical way, this afternoon, if you go to a restaurant, you're going to maybe have a choice between certain different kinds of foods, and maybe you're going to pick this restaurant over another restaurant, but as you get sitting down, you may have a choice before you. And the choice before you may be this, a cheeseburger or a kale salad. And you most, most of you would probably pick, not all of you, but some of you will pick the cheeseburger. Oh, why would you pick a cheeseburger over kale salad? Well, probably because you want the cheeseburger. Well, why do you want the cheeseburger? Because it, in your mind, tastes better. And, and it's something that you like. It's something that you love. Now, some of you may pick the kale salad. And it's not because you're crazy. <laughs> some people love kale. I mean, people eat it all the time. But if you get to the real motivation why some people will, will choose kale over a cheeseburger will not necessarily be about taste. It will be because you love yourself. 
and you think that if you eat kale, it is way healthier than eating a cheeseburger, and therefore, if you eat healthy, you'll live longer, and therefore, you will eat kale over a cheeseburger because ultimately, you love yourself. And what I'm trying to get at is that if you dive down deeper into the actions of your life, the motivation, the root of that is what you love. So here Moses says, or God says through Moses, that this great commandment is to love the Lord, but not just period. Notice to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, you've heard this before, but the heart is that which is from within. You're to love God with all of your heart. I love you with all of my heart. I'm sure you've said that to somebody over the period of time in your life. But not only to love him with your heart, but also your soul, which speaks of your emotions, your passions, your hungers, and your thoughts, that you love God with your emotions. You love him with your thoughts. But then he uses the word my. Now, we tend to think of this as your strength. And in one sense, it is strength. But actually, the Hebrew word here, uh, might, can be translated uh, very or veryness. So here God says that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart inwardly. You are to love him with all your, your soul, that is your passions, your hungers, your affections, and then you are to love him with all your veryness or all that you are. One commentator said that if Moses' call to love God starts with our heart and then moves out to our being, could not our veryness be one step bigger and include all of our resources? So to love God with your veryness, to love God with your might, is to say that everything in your life is at his disposal because you love God. So everything in your life, your spouse, your children, your, ma- your money, your, your house, your clothes, your cell phone, your time, your talent, and your treasure... Everything belongs to him. Anything that God wants, God gets because we love God. So to love God ultimately is to treasure God as your supreme treasure. It is to consistently, authentically love God with all that you are. Not mechanical, not partial, but total. So therefore, the text here is saying that the love that we should have for God has no divided allegiances or affections. It is not a love because we have to, but a love because we want to. How many of you this past week have bought your kids their stuff for school? And you get this long, incredibly long list that they need to have 55,000 pencils, 30,000 glue sticks, 1,400 highlighters. And you go, the list goes on and on and on. And so you take your kids to the store. You take them to the dollar store or Walmart or Target. If you're really rich, you can afford to do that. You'll take them to Target. And, and you'll go through the little line and you'll have your little cart or carts of stuff. And you'll load it up in there. And then the next thing you hear is beep, 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 beep. And you look at it, it looks like the national debt. You know, and it just keeps going and going and going, and you see all this stuff, and finally you get to the end of the rainbow when it's $75,000, and you have to take out a loan to pay this stuff, and that's just the school supplies. Then you take them to the mall, because they got to have new clothes, right? So you take them to that great French store, Jesse Penney, 
and you go and you say, get what you want as long as it's this kind of brand because that's the only way the 25% off works. You can't buy Nike, you can't buy Columbia, but you can buy Broke, okay? And we'll just do whatever. So you get in there and you load a card upon card and your kids go up there and it's beep, 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 beep. And you see like, you're like, okay, well, I'll work till I'm 80 just to pay off the clothes debt. And anyway, so you get to the end of this and you've spent all this money on your kids and they're going to outgrow it all and all that other stuff's going to be wasted. But you do it. Why? Because you love your kid, right? If they need it, you'll get it. You'll do whatever it takes for your kid. Why? You love your kid. Well, here, God is saying that we are to love him more than we love our kids, more than we love our spouse. We are to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our might. That is the command. And I want you to hear me this morning that that's a hard command, right? There's no one in this room that can say that they obey this command every day. But yet, all of us should aspire to obey it. All of us should have a desire to love God more today than we loved him yesterday. So the question is, how do we do that? How can we stir up this loving feeling? You know, in one sense, it seems that it would be easy to love God, but yet all of us know that in another sense, because of our sinfulness, it seems hard. So how can I love God more? Well, I want to give you how you can love God more, because this is paramount to the entire discussion we're going to have this morning. That if you want to love God more, then you need to fill your life with things that stir your affections for God. To bring back that loving feeling. Oh, that loving feeling. You want that loving feeling before it's gone, gone, gone. Oh, oh, oh. You stir up by, number one, spending more time with God. It's hard to love somebody you spend no time with. Now, they say absence does make the heart grow fonder, but I don't think that's true. And I want you to understand that you cannot love God through somebody else. You have to spend time with God. There's a story I heard about this guy that was going to date his girlfriend for a year. And how he dated her is he sent a letter to her in the mail every day. So every day he wrote this letter and every day the letter was delivered. And you know what happened at the end of that year? She married the mailman. You cannot love God by spending no time with God. How do you spend time with God? By reading and meditating on God's word, by getting in the word, by spending time with God in prayer, through quiet time, by hanging out with God and just being with God. But not only do you, do you grow your affections by spending time with him, but also by thinking more about him through worship, through music, and through community. The reason that we gather, the reason that we sing songs, whether you know them or don't know them, the whether they're old or whether they're new, is the ultimate goal is to bring into your mind the greatness of who God is. That as you, expol, as you extol him in the assembly, as David would say, as you sing about him and think about him and dwell deeply about him and have other people in your life speaking into your life how great he is, it just builds your heart's affections for him. You know, another way that you can stir up affections about God is to tell others about him. 
When you tell others about God, it stirs up your own love from God. It, it's something that inevitably happens whenever I'm away from my wife from, uh, for a long period of time. Whenever I'm out, I start talking about her to other people. And I start telling them how great she is, how wonderful a mother she is, and how wonderful a wife she is, and all of this and that and the other. And, and, and it begins to just inspire, inspire my heart of how much I miss her and how much I love her because the more I talk about her, the more I love her. And as you tell other people ab- about God and as you tell other people about his greatness, as you tell other people about his goodness in your own life, it stirs up that love in your life. Now notice verse 6. Verse 6 says, And these words that I command you today shall be in Say this word together with me, your heart. Not their heart, it should be, but it first must start in your heart. See, it starts with you and your love for God. It cannot be somebody else. If the next generation is going to have a chance at loving God, it starts with you loving God. See, if you are lukewarm about God, don't be surprised when your kids are cold towards him. So if you're a parent this morning, you have to understand that you will never have children that love God and you should never expect children that love God if you don't love God. Why? Because if you know anything about raising children, whatever you are passionate about, normally your kids become passionate about. If you've been around my boys long enough, even my daughter, one thing you will probably learn from them is that they are dyed in the wool, true blue Kentucky fans. Where do they get that from? Well, one, they're extremely intelligent. But number two, they get it from their dad. And you'll notice that they are little fans because of me. But what's happened, what's interesting is that when they were little bitty, I would tell them, you need to cheer for Kentucky. And they had one friend that was a Tennessee fan. And we're praying for that person's soul. And they started saying just to get at me, go Tennessee, go Tennessee. And I'd say, slap that nasty out of your mouth. But eventually, they, not only did they start hearing me talk about Kentucky, but after a while, they started loving Kentucky. Now they're just as diehard of a fan as I am. They love them as much as I love them. And what happens is that my passion for them became their passion, and they put in their life. Some of you say maybe we're not sports fans, but maybe your career style is because of your parents or some of your hobbies. Listen, you cannot teach your kids to be passionate about something that you're not passionate about. And so my prayer is, is that for every parent in this room and every grandparent in this room, is that your passion for God overflows in front of your kids. But I want you to hear that multi-generational ministry, multi-generational disciple making, is ultimately about one generation cultivating in the heart of another generation a love for God. That's what we want here. We want older people and younger people, and middle-aged people in the church treasuring Christ together as the supreme treasure. It's moms, it's dads, it's grandpas, it's grandmas, it's kids, it's grandkids treasuring Christ together. It starts with a passion for God. Second thing in this text, not only do we pass to the next generation this love for God, but we do that by teaching this truth practically. In verse 7, notice what Moses says. Moses says, you shall teach them, what is them? The words, the command to love God diligently to your children. The word diligently means 
carefully, consistently, with energy. Now, some of you this morning, you read this and say, it's hard teaching your kids anything. Because you get home from work, the last thing you want to do is teach your kids stuff, right? You think in your mind, they've already been taught. Their brain is blown. Mine is dead. Let's go watch a show. But to Moses, this was the educational system for ancient Israel. It was that the previous generation was to transmit to the next generation a love for God that would shape their future, the nation's future, and ultimately the world's future. And some of you, maybe you read this and you hear this and you think, well, I'm too busy to do that. Well, God knows you're busy. And God knows you're going to say that. So God, in his wisdom, has a strategy. Here's what this strategy is. You're going to, go back, please. You're going to go and you're going to teach them diligently. You're going to talk of them, that is the, the love for God, when you sit in your house. All right. How many of you sit in your house? Okay. All right. When you walk by the way, how many of you walk? All right. Now, you could also say that in ancient Israel, most people's transportation mode was walking. So basically, he says, when you're with your kids in the house, when you're sitting in the house, when you walk by the way, this could also be when you drive. So in the, in the in modern, is when you drive your kids. How many of you drive your kids places? I know they drive you crazy. Where are you driving them? All right, continue. And when you lie down, how many, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but how many of your kids sleep in the house? Let me say, I got a 40-year-old. <laughs> and when you rise, when you get up in the morning, you are their wake-up clock. You get up there and you sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, and you better get up or I'm going to whoop you. <laughs> What Moses is saying is this, is that essentially we are to redeem our time with our kids in normal life and redeem those little moments and teach them to love God in those moments. So when you have those moments with your kids when they're sitting in the house or when they're riding in the car, I mean, they're trapped in the car. Well, when they're, when they're going to bed and when they get up in the morning, you, you can't punt that time to their devices. You have to spend time to be intentional. You need to listen to your kids and talk to your kids and ask your kids questions and let them answer without you getting mad at them if they say something wrong because your job is not to moralize your kids. Your job is to gospelize your kids and to install the gospel of Jesus in the everyday conversation that as you lay down or as you sit down at a dinner table or as you're riding in a car or when they get up in the morning, you are constantly reminding Reminding them and telling them about God. Everybody in this room gets 168 hours in a week. That seems like a lot of hours, but if you really break it down, it may not seem so much, but I want you to look at this fraction, 1 and 168. Imagine after church today, we go to a pizza place, and I give you one 168th piece of a, sl a slice of a pizza. You would look at me... And you would say, that's not enough, right? Well, that represents the amount of time that the average regular attending Christian gets in spiritual influence a week. 
one hour out of 168. Now, let's just think about that in terms of other things you do during your week. Most people typically get about 50 hours of sleep a week. I think middle schoolers get about 500, but most people get about 50. The average working person gets about 40 hours of work, some more, some less. The average school student gets 35 hours of school. Did you know in Central Florida, it's, it's the average person has 12 hours a week that they are riding in a car in traffic or just riding to different locations, 12 hours a week. 35 hours a week are spent watching a screen, not at work. So if you add up all that I said, 50 hours of sleep, 40 hours of working, 12 hours stuck in traffic, 35 hours watching a screen, that's 137 hours. So that means if you just do the simple math that there's about 31 hours that are uncalled for. That, is, that means that your kids can watch whatever they want for 35 hours and you still have 31 hours that's unused or could be used with meaning. There's a, stu- a study that was done at, at Cal Berkeley in California, at the University of Cal Berkeley, and, and they said that they, they did a study on meaningful conversations between parents and kids and they, they found that the average amount of time that is spent between parents and kids in America in meaningful conversations. What do you think that would be in time? So you say an hour, two hours, three hours. They found that it was three and a half minutes. So let's just do some more math. If your kid gets 35 hours at school and 35 hours on a screen or more, that would equal 70 hours or 42% of your kid's weekly time. And 42% of your kid's weekly time is being used by other people who are shaping their worldview other than you. So at best, at very best, if you come at least once a, a week and you have your kids and yourself in something, a group or worship, they are at very best getting one hour a week in church and three and a half minutes with you. That's not enough. See, God's plan from the beginning is that younger people and older people spend time together. Did you know that? God did not want the segmentation of our society as we have it today. And what we're finding is that the result of this, even in the midst of the the explosion of social media and globalization, it is found that Generation Z is probably one of the most loneliest generations of all time. Sean McDowell in his book that that the next generation may know said this. He said, the loneliness of this generation stems from broken relationships. When healthy relationships are lacking, young people experience a vacuum that they seek to fill with a relational counterfeit. Young people, I don't care who you are, this week, Pastor Mike and myself will be down to Seminole High School working and talking to a football team. Those young men are hungry for relationships, right, Mike? They are hungry for people to spend time with them. Young people are dying. They are desperate for someone to love them, especially someone that's older than them, to pour into their lives. And when they don't get it, when there are broken relationships because of a broken home or parents that just are broke and don't want to spend any time with them, what they will do is they will seek to fill that with something else, which is consumerism, busyness, pornography, social media, or video games, all of which are counterfeits. So the question this morning for you, if you are a part of this family, is that if you are a senior adult, you say, who is that? If you are eligible for an AARP card, that's you. 
Who is a younger person or couple in your life that you are pouring into outside of your family? Younger people. That is under 55. Who is a senior or older person that you have a relationship with that you are listening to and learning from? You say, well, I don't have anyone. Where can you find that? You can find that relationship in the church. This is why it is a blessing to serve in our ministries here. This is why it's a blessing to serve in children's ministries, a blessing to serve in preschool ministry. It's a blessing to serve in student ministry, in college ministry, and, and, and young adult ministry because it's an opportunity for you to build relationship with people. But also, younger people, there are opportunities for you to cultivate relationships with older people, and we find it through serving projects and other opportunities. And what you're going to see and what you ultimately should, should know is that if we're actually going to reach the next generation for Christ, we have to have a relationship with them. But yet with that, I want you to understand that all generations need two things. They need truth and they need relationships. The next generation specifically needs truth and relationships. So I wrote this little ditty right up here, and let's just read it together. Truth without relationship leads to rebellion. Now, some of you heard this, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. And what that means is this, is that, you know, a lot of people grew up and all their parents did was say, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Well, why, mommy? Why, daddy? Because I said so. It's the truth. But they didn't have any relationship because mom and dad were busy working. Mom and dad were busy doing other things. They didn't really spend any time with them. So what happened is, is they gave the truth without relationship, and that led to rebellion. So this is the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. Truth without relationship. But then they say, well, you need to have a relationship with your kids. You need to love them, and you need to be their best friend, and you need to dress like them and talk like them and get a spray tan together with them and build a relationship with them. But what happens is, is if you have relationship without truth, it leads to confusion. And that's what we've had in modern America today. That's what Generation Z is. And you've seen parents that have gone from helicopter parents or just free-range parents, let the kids just live like crazy people and hope they turn out all right. But there's no truth. They're not teaching the truth of God's Word. But when you have truth... With relationship, it leads to a connection. And that connection is to God and each other. That's what they need. Here's what I want you to hear, parents. You cannot make your kids fall in love with Jesus. But you can set up as many dates with Jesus as possible. Put them in a position where through your relationship and your teaching the truth, that they're in a situation where they can come and love Jesus like you do. Moses continues and he says, you shall bind them on your hand and between your eyes. You should have constant reminders. As families, you need to have constant opportunities to remind your kids, whether they are physical in your house or just situations in your house where you say to your kids, this house is going to love God. He is going to be what we talk about when we sit down. He's going to be what we talk about when we ride in the car. He's going to be what we talk about when we eat together. He's going to be what we talk about when we go to bed. We're not ashamed. And you say, well, pastor, my kid is way grown. It's too late. No, it's not too late. As long as they're in your house, it's never too late. That's a great place for an amen. Love the Lord passionately. Teach kids truth practically. And let me give you the last one really quick. 
Share your story personally. Verse 20, Moses says, when your son asks you in time, when they get older, and they, they've been constantly hearing you talk about your love for God, they're going to ask you, what's the meaning? What's this mean? What's this all about? You tell me I'm supposed to love God and, and all this stuff. I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to go to church. I'm supposed to do this, supposed to do that. And they ask you, well, what does it mean? Here's what you're supposed to say. Then you say to your son, well, we do it because we're supposed to. No. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. What Moses does is he connects doctrine with action. He says that we were once slaves, but the Lord brought us out. That, that this whole concept of loving God, the reason, son, why we love God, the reason why mommy and daddy love God is because God first loved us. And how I know God loved us is not some pie in the sky, ethereal thing that we read in some sort of crazy uh, uh, new age stuff, but we know that God loves us, not in abstract, but God loved us in concrete. That he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, he rescued us. He died for us to save us. See, what the next generation needs is not a lecture. What the next generation needs is a testimony. They need to see how God changed your life. And the only way they're going to see or hear that is you've got to be open. You've got to be authentic. You've got to be transparent. Here's some good news. God does not expect anyone in this room to be a perfect parent. Praise God. There are no perfect people in the church. And if you this morning are pretending to be perfect, you should not be trusted. We are all people who desperately need to be forgiven, desperately need to be rescued, desperately need to be changed. And so therefore, if you are an older person, it is completely right and, and great to be honest with the younger generation of how God changed your life. You don't have to go into the nasty, dirty, sordid details of your life, but you can at least be honest. You can't just run around acting like you were born with a suit and tie on, acting like you walk on water every day. We cannot and should not continue in front of the next generation to have a facade of self-righteousness because they'll sniff it out. What encourages them to want to listen is your authenticity. So share your story. Share of God's great story, his great grace in your life. So practically, this is our vision, church. This is our vision is to be multi-generational. I think at times we fail to do that. I failed to lead us there because I've preferred one generation particularly over another. But we are to be in this together, and it's all generations working together to treasure Christ. And I want you to hear, it's not easy. It's extremely difficult, but it's necessary. I want you to hear me this morning that not everything in the church is something you're going to like. We need to make our worship services, we need to make our ministries here open to people of all ages, young and old, and middle. And I want you to hear, if you're here this morning, you're a young person or an older person or a middle-aged person, and if you are here and you're comfortable with everything goes, that goes on in the church, we're probably not doing it right. 
And what we want to do as, as a church is we want to come alongside parents. We want to come alongside as grandparents to equip and coach them to disciple their children and their grandchildren. And those whose parents do not attend church, we want to come and love them and point them to Christ. And we want to encourage you and find avenues. So over the next few months, you're going to be hearing avenues for you to be involved in other people's lives to disciple them and point them to Christ. But I want you to hear this one thing. This is not a new program. It has to be a new attitude. We cannot fall into the trap of American culture of an us versus them mentality. We have to see that we're all family. A family that's healthy has young people, has old people, has middle people, has good people, has bad people, has annoying people. But we're all a family. And we sacrifice for each other because Jesus sacrificed for us. Let me end with this. Just three or four weeks ago, I was in Auschwitz, Birkenau, in Poland. And I went and I toured it. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a history major. That was what my major was in college. And as I was walking through this tour, which if you don't know anything about Auschwitz-Birkenau, it was two concentration camps really. Uh, they, they had one and they had so many people they had to build another one. And it's basically where the, the, the Nazis systematically murdered millions of people in this one site. They had many of these different concentration camps all throughout Europe, but, but, but Auschwitz is kind of known as being one of the worst. And as I was taking this tour, we were in the Auschwitz side of the camp, and, and we walked by Block 18. And out, outside of Block 18 would be where every day the prisoners who were out were on work detail would come in and they would be counted. And, and what, the, what, the, what the guards would do is that they would count all the people, and if one prisoner had escaped, because they would do it from time to time, is that they would kill or murder 10 people for that one person. So on July the 29th, 1941, someone escaped. And so the guard just picked out randomly 10 people. You, 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 you. The last one he picked was a, was a younger guy. And this younger guy saw that he was being chosen. He, he wasn't a Jew. He was a, a Polish political prisoner. And he begged for mercy. He got on his hands and knees. He begged for mercy. They were starting to beat him and punch him, make him stand back up. He was begging for mercy. He says, don't take me. I have a wife. I have a, chill. I have a family. Don't take me. Don't take me. And they didn't care. They just took him along until one guy stood up. His name was Maximilian Colby. And he looked at the guard and he said, take me. The guy who was saved said later on that all he could do, he couldn't say a word, but all he did was look this man in the eyes. And the guard took Colby and the other nine prisoners and instead of killing them on the spot, which they would do, they decided to have fun with him and they put him in a starvation cell. Days would go by and about two weeks, six of the prisoners would die of starvation. Four remained. One of them was Maximilian Colby. He didn't die of starvation, but he died of lethal injection. They killed him. That happened on August the 14th, 1941. You know, August the 14th is in three days. And every August the 14th, the man who was saved, who actually survived Auschwitz and went home to his family. Every August the 14th, it was a holiday to him. 
in which he took everybody that he knew that he could to, to remember what happened. But one thing about this guy is that we found out later on, he shared this with everybody. He shared this story with everybody, what Colby did for him. He shared it with his wife. He shared it with his kids. He shared it with his future grandkids. He shared it with anybody that he could because he never forgot until he died in 1995 at the ripe age of 94. He never forgot. Well, as great as Maximilian Colby is, what he did for that man pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ did for you. That you were not just at random chosen to die, but you, because of your sins, were destined to die. And instead, Jesus took your place. And He took your sin and He took your shame and He took your sorrow and He made it His very own. And He wasn't starved to death. He was crucified on a cross for you. And that's why we love Him. Because He first loved us. And we want to share to the next generation how great His love is. Because not only does He save you, He'll save anybody who comes to Him. So church family, here's what I want us to do in this moment. I want us to have a time where we reflect on the goodness of God. But if you're here today and your mom or dad or your family member or grandkid or grandson are here and you want to just pray over them, you can pray over them right down at this altar right there in your pew just ask God to move over them. Maybe you don't have any children and you just pray for people around you or pray that God would use you in a mighty way. I thank God for Jan Shockey and her ministry here at Central. But pray that God would use you. 